Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. We're going to read from verse 24 to 43. Twenty-four to Verse 24. Another parable Jesus put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where did these tares come from? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Will you, Do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. All these spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire so shall it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray again. Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, we just ask, God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would take this inspired portion in the words of your Son that he spoke while he was on the earth, and Lord, that you would speak directly to us this morning, that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are, are, are soft and able to receive the things that you, would have us, that you would have us hear, that you would say to us, Lord, these are hard things. Let us not close our hearts just because it's hard. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it's important for us to understand that the parables of Jesus look a whole lot different to us today with 2,000 years of hindsight than to the Jews in the first century on the very first day that they were uttered. It's important for us to understand that what today, when we look at these parables, might seem quite apparent in the first century, it would have seemed quite puzzling for the Jews. And this is not just true for the parables of Jesus, but for much of the sayings of Jesus, which we read today, 2,000 years of hindsight, and we say it's bonehead obvious what he means. And in their day, his sayings would have been quite puzzling. For example, you remember in John chapter 2, verse 19, we looked at this last week, but Jesus said, uh, or two weeks ago we looked at this, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it again. Right? John 2.19, Jesus says that to the, to, the, to the Jewish people who asked him for a sign. Of course, they didn't understand that. They said, what are you talking about? It took us 40-some years to build this temple. Are you going to build it in three days? It doesn't make any sense. So in hindsight, we can understand what Jesus is saying. In fact, the disciples in hindsight understood later. It said, when Jesus had risen from the dead, then they understood. He wasn't talking about the physical temple, the building. He was talking about his body something that seemed puzzling at that time and made clear later. Or you'll remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be uh, betrayed and he's going to be mocked and scourged and crucified. And then on the third day, he's going to rise again. Now that was very puzzling for his disciples to hear. His disciples heard that, and Peter objected and said, no, Lord, this is not good. This is not right. Now, we read that 2,000 years later and say, just be quiet, Peter, sit down. This is important for our salvation, right? We need to understand that as we read the words of Jesus and the parables of Jesus, what may seem apparent wasn't obviously often apparent in the first century. See, we read with great advantage. As I said, 2,000 years of hindsight, 2,000 years of history has passed since Jesus has uttered these sayings. And we have 2,000 years of history to interpret the Christ's words in the light of what has happened in 2,000 years. We can see how his words fit with history. We have New Testament scholarship, 2,000 years of it. We have the Apostles' commentary on the Old Testament. We understand that Jesus is coming twice. We understand that he came 
the first time and that he's coming again as we already prayed today. We understand Jesus is coming again. Now to the Jews in the first century, they didn't have these advantages. You've got to understand that the Jews were on the threshold of something new. They had zero hindsight. They had the Pharisaic interpretation of the Old Testament, some of which was right, much of which was wrong. And so when they heard Jesus' teachings, they filtered it through their understanding that they had. The Jews didn't understand two comings of the Messiah. They expected the Messiah to come at that time in the first century, but they also expected that with the Messiah would come the mighty appearance of the kingdom of God, the eschatological appearance of the kingdom of God. They expected that the Messiah would come and overthrow the enemies of Israel and establish Israel, uh, the divine theocracy, and would, that the Messiah would rule over all the earth at that very time. And it's actually because of this expectation that in the first century, the Jewish nation revolted against the Romans and ultimately were destroyed. They were destroyed in 70 AD. Why did they revolt? It's kind of a, a silly thing to do if you're a little nation revolting against the Roman Empire, right? They expected at that time for God to overthrow the Romans. They expected glory. They had an unexpected welcome of shame, an unexpected shame at that time. They had the wrong expectation. Now last week, we looked at how Jesus spoke in parables, and the reason for doing this was to intentionally hide the mysteries of the kingdom of God and to show it only to a select few. The mysteries of the kingdom of God were reserved for those who had ears to hear, for those who were listeners, for those who sat at the feet of Jesus in humility, understanding that he's the Messiah, and we're going to learn from him. The disciples' attitude was, I know that you're the Messiah, but I don't necessarily understand all the things you're saying. Can you please teach me? That's why they asked Jesus, can you tell us the meaning of these parables? That was the disciples' attitude towards Jesus. They had ears to hear the interpretation of the parables. But for those who didn't have ears to hear, Jesus said even what they seemed to have would be taken away from them. They were proud and they professed themselves to be wise. Their expectation of glory was pride. The Pharisaic interpretation of the Old Testament and the Jewish expectation that God was about to appear and set up the mighty kingdom of God on the earth and overthrow the Romans was not a sign of good, a good understanding of the Old Testament, but a bad understanding of the Old Testament. They didn't see themselves as sinners. They didn't see themselves as about to be destroyed by God. And the reality was, as God was about to pour out judgment on that nation, and they were so blind, they thought God was about to pour out glory. They got the exact opposite of what they expected, because they were not listeners Jesus said, if you had listened to Moses, then you would have believed in me because you don't listen to Moses. You don't believe in me. You're going to be destroyed. The Pharisees' attitude was essentially this. I don't know what these parables mean, but I think they're against me, and I don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. Let's find a way to catch him in his words and destroy him. And all in the name of a false righteousness which expects glory from God. 
two totally different responses to Jesus, two totally different responses that, are, that still exist today. There are many people today who are falsely expecting glory. Many people today expect to go to heaven when in fact they are going to get an unexpected shame. And it's because of their attitude towards Jesus. I've talked to many people about the Lord Jesus. And many people, most people I've talked to, who I believe, according to the Bible, are not going to be saved at at this time, anyway. They're on their way to hell. They're not on their way to heaven. They can go to heaven if if they change their attitude about Jesus. But most people that I talk to, that I perceive, according to the Bible, are on their way to hell. They don't think they're going to hell, and they don't listen to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that they might not have good things to say about Jesus. They might say, oh, I believe in Jesus and I really like Jesus. But they don't really listen to Jesus. They don't really open up the Bible and read what he has to say, say in the Sermon on the Mount about righteousness, about hell, about the narrow road, about faith in him and faith in him only that saves. They don't take heed to what he says. They just have an idea of Jesus that, they, that they've created and they like that idea of Jesus and they're expecting glory. There's a pattern in the Bible. In the Proverbs, it says, there's a way that seems right to a man and the end thereof is death. Sadly, many people, and Jesus told us this in Matthew 7, verse 21, many people on Judgment Day are going to be shocked. What they didn't expect to get, they're going to get. What they expected to get, they're not going to get. You don't want to be one of those people We saw last week that Jesus spoke in parables to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to those who had ears to hear. This morning, look at verse 35. We see another reason why Jesus spoke in parables. Matthew quotes the prophet. It's actually uh, Asaph in the Psalms. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So here Matthew tells us that another reason why Jesus spoke in parables was because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy by speaking in parables. And what this did is it gave us a sign of his messiahship. It showed us that he was the Messiah. People could have recognized, hey, uh, he's speaking in parables. The Messiah, one of the things that he's going to do when he comes is to speak in parables. It shows us that. And yet it also shows us the content of his parables in verse 35, that he's speaking secrets from the foundation of the world, or another way to put that is the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Verse 11. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are secrets that God has from the foundation of the world. Secrets about the kingdom. The kingdom kingdom of God, according to this text, is not just black and white. There's things that are hidden. There are things about the kingdom that have been hidden from the foundation of the world that are now being revealed in the teachings of Jesus. Things about the kingdom of God that no one understood until that time. Yet we as Christians should know these things now. 
things that Jesus was revealing about the kingdom, we as Christians ought to know what these things are. For example, last week, in the parable of the sower, what we learned, we learned a secret of the kingdom. We learned a mystery of the kingdom, and that's this. That there's a message about the kingdom that the Messiah is giving. This message of the kingdom, if you see in verse 19, the word of the kingdom or the message of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom concerns righteousness. Everything Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount about righteousness and the law is part of the message of the kingdom. And another thing we learn is that this message is not completely received by those who hear it. Now, this is contrary to expectation. Jesus is saying, there's a message of the kingdom that I'm preaching that many people are going to reject. This is different than the common expectation of the Jewish people that the, all you got to know about the kingdom of God is the Messiah is coming to bring it. All you got to know is the Messiah is coming to overthrow the Romans. All the kingdom of God is about is an unstoppable, conquering king. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. There's a message about the kingdom of God here, and that message has to do with righteousness, and it can be rejected, and it will be. That's a mystery of the kingdom. That's something that the Jewish people didn't expect in the first century. Even Jesus' disciples had to learn this lesson. But hopefully, we as Christians know it now, this secret, this mystery, after 2,000 years of studying the Bible. We should know that the kingdom of God is more than just Christ coming as a king and, and conquering, right? Militarily, physically. But the kingdom of God also is about righteousness and this message of the gospel. As we see later in the Bible, it's actually described as the gospel of the kingdom. Actually, we already saw that in Matthew. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. It's not just about Jesus overthrowing the Romans or the Messiah overthrowing the Romans. It's about the good news of the kingdom. And that's a message to be believed in the first century and today. The rest of the parables that we read here in Matthew 13 likewise contain similar unexpected insights into the kingdom of God, mysteries about the kingdom that were new for the people in the first century, and hopefully we have learned them as Christians. So let's look at the parables that we read this morning, and we'll start with the first one, commonly known as the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. Now, this parable is fairly straightforward, I want you to imagine yourself as the sower. Let's say you have a field, you own a field, and uh, you want to plant wheat in your field. Why do you want to do that? So you can make an income. So you plant the wheat in your field, everything's going fine. Everyone goes to bed like normal, and you have an enemy, someone who's against you, someone who's hostile to you, maybe a competitor. He comes along and he wants to ruin your field. He doesn't want you to succeed. Maybe, he does, maybe he's threatened by you. And so he comes along in the night, and he's got a whole bunch of uh, bad seed of uh, this false wheat, tares, and he sows it all over your field, all among the wheat that you've planted. Now, the actual plant that Jesus has in, uh, that is, he's speaking about, and all scholars agree on this because of the word that is used, and, and uh, the Jewish people also talked about this very plant, it's called darnel. And uh, darnel, this, this particular plant that the enemy plants, it looks exactly like wheat. It looks exactly like wheat in so much that you cannot even tell that it's not wheat 
until later on. So, and that's actually the detail Jesus gives here. Um, he says in verse 26, when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And so Darnell looks exactly like real wheat, except when it comes, when it finally grows and it starts producing its fruit, real wheat, here's, the, here's how you know. Real wheat, the, the, the grains on the wheat are heavy, and because they're heavy, the wheat bends over. It bows down. And the darnel, it looks just like wheat, but the, the seeds or the grains and the fruit on the wheat are not heavy, and that plant sticks straight up. So you've got your field now, and a whole bunch of wheat is bending over, and a whole bunch of what looks like wheat is standing straight up. Ah, that's not wheat, it's darnel. Darn that darnel. <laughs> A visual lesson in humility, it seems. <laughs> the true wheat are bending over, and the false wheat are standing straight up. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, this particular plant is called zonin. And the Jewish people actually believe that that particular weed started to appear at the time of the flood, when the world was it said all the flesh had corrupted itself and everything on the earth had corrupted itself. It thought at that time, wheat had even corrupted itself and uh, become this awful plant called zonin, the Hebrew said. And it's interesting that the word zonin is related to the Hebrew word zonah, which is prostitute. And the word zonah is used against Israel by the prophets. They call Israel a prostitute for for. Uh, not listening to God and not being faithful to God and his law and following after idols. Now, what else would you do? Now, imagine you've got this field. Everything's been growing fine in your eyes until finally the fruit starts to appear on, these, on the wheat and you notice that a whole bunch of your wheat is bending over down and a whole bunch of your wheat is sticking up and say, hey, this is not good. This is Darnell. This is not good at all. And your servants are right when they say, hey, or they said, how'd this get here? And, and you realize an enemy did this. Number one, because we didn't plant Darnell, we planted wheat. And number two, there's too much of that Darnell for it to be just natural. We know somebody did this, an enemy. And your servants come to you and say, do you want us to just go throughout the field and pull out the Darnell? And he says, no, because you're going to pull out a bunch of wheat if you do that too. Basically, the roots of these plants are all intertwined. So if you go, th imagine going through a, a wheat field trying to pull out false wheat that's been scattered all throughout. It's going to be a pretty difficult task. And you're going to pull up real wheat because of all the roots being entangled. So what else would you do? He says, well, we'll just let them grow and wait till it's time to harvest. We'll cut all the stuff and then we'll just uh, separate it individually. That's going to be a task, but... That's the only way we're going to save the wheat if we do it that way. So this is actually a, a parable that is just a normal life experience. There's nothing odd about this parable. I'm sure the Jewish people would have uh, resonated with perhaps an enemy doing that and also with how you would have dealt with the situation. Let them grow, cut it all at the end, and then separate them. Now in verse 36... Jesus, in private, explains to the disciples what this parable means. In private to his disciples who asked him for the meaning. And he gives a very straightforward answer, doesn't he? 
There's nothing complicated at all about this parable. And we'd have to be willfully blind and shut our brains off to not get the point of this parable. Jesus makes it very clear. The sower is the son of man. That is, the sower is me, Jesus says. The Messiah is the sower. What this teaches us is that this parable has to do with what follows the Messiah's coming. It has to do with the time that we live in today. It has to do with the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second. And it's a new lesson for the disciples because they didn't expect two comings. They expected only one. The sower sows the seed. Later, there's the harvest. Number two, the field, verse 38, is the world. Sometimes, as Christians, we think the field is the church. We talk about how the church is a mixed bag. Um, That's not accurate. Jesus says the world is a mixed bag. The world is mixed with wheat and tares. Now, certainly that would apply to churches, because this world has lots of churches in it, uh, and uh, you'll find... uh, believers in Christ, and you'll find people who don't believe in Christ in churches. But not the church. The church is not in view. But the world. Next he talks about what the wheat is. He says explicitly, verse 38, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. Notice how he says the children of the kingdom. That is, those who have received the word of the kingdom... Which, was preach, which we learned about last week in the parable of the sower, those who have received the message of the kingdom, the message of righteousness, they've accepted the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, they've accepted Jesus, they've believed in him, they've accepted the word of the kingdom, and so they belong to the kingdom of God. That's the good seed. Children of the kingdom, he says. Interestingly enough, for the disciples, they would have heard children of the kingdom are living amidst the wicked. Hmm. That's a new thought. And it would have been shocking for them to hear that, that side by side the children of the kingdom are the children of the wicked one. He says, the tares are the children of the wicked one. That would be this, those who reject the message of the kingdom. We learned last week in the sower that the message of the kingdom goes forth and the, the devil, the wicked one, snatches the word out of the hearts of men. Anyone who does not believe in the gospel of Christ is a child of the devil. Jesus himself taught that. And let's let's be clear on that, that there are only two kinds of people in this world, Jesus is saying. There's the children of God, the children of the devil, or the children of God, the children of the kingdom, or the children of the devil, who are not those who belong in the kingdom of God. And the difference is, is if you accept the message or not. Jesus says that most of Israel in Jesus' day were children of the wicked one. If you remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 45, Jesus said that he existed in a wicked generation. A generation that was wicked, a generation that didn't believe in him, a generation that was the children of the devil. That was odd for 
the Jewish people to hear, for Jesus to come along the Messiah and say, this is a wicked generation. They expected, no, this is the generation of glory. This is the generation the Messiah is going to show up and Israel is going to rule. No, he says, this is a wicked generation. Jesus goes on to say that the enemy is the devil who snatches away the word of the kingdom. The harvest is the end of the age. In the Greek, it's age, not world. It's not that when the end comes, it's the end of the world, but the end of the age. This age between the comings of Christ comes to an end when Christ returns and a new age dawns, according to Jesus and the apostles' teaching on that. And Jesus tells us that the reapers are the angels, and many passages in the Bible show us this. Now here's an amazing thing, and this is just something to meditate on. You can believe it, but sometimes you need to just think about how awesome and sobering this is. Jesus teaches that when he returns, there's going to be a great separation when he returns, and not beforehand. There will be no separation of the righteous from the unrighteous before Jesus Christ returns with his angels. And when he returns, Jesus tells us explicitly, you'll see in verse 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things which offend and them which do iniquity. Shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. He tells us what's going to happen. The children of the wicked are going to be cast out. They don't belong to the kingdom of God. And he tells them they're going to be cast into a furnace of fire. Jesus is not using symbolism here. Jesus is explaining a symbolic parable. And he uses the phrase, a furnace of fire. This would be the punishment for sinners. This would be as what we as Christians would say is hell. This is a sobering thing. We need to think about this and meditate on this as Christians, that Jesus says this is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. We've not seen anything like this before. It's not going to go on as it's always gone. This age is going to come to an end. Isn't that a sobering and amazing thought? We've never seen this before. He also says the children of the kingdom will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. They belonged to the kingdom, and now they are physically in the kingdom and manifested in glory. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. He said, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. At this time, uh, we do belong to the kingdom. We are in Christ. Christ is in glory, and we are seated with him at the right hand, but it certainly is not manifestly so, is it? If you look at me throughout the week, you're not going to see glory, right? Unless you look at me with eyes of faith. But one day, those who belong to the kingdom and the righteous will also appear with Christ in glory when he returns. And this is an awesome thought. So on this day, brothers and sisters, we have two radical, radical things that take place. We have something so wonderful and we have something so horrible on this day. We shall be separated. Now think about that. There's a day coming when believers in Christ will be separated 
from those who don't believe. There's a day coming when the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. We will no longer live together. We will no longer be side by side. We'll no longer be mixed. Our roots will no longer be tangled in this world. Isn't that an amazing, amazing thought? And what we are now will be manifested. See, at this time, because we don't see the difference manifestly, sometimes we're tempted to think there is no difference. Many people think there is no difference. A a Christian is the same as a non-Christian. There's no difference. They both look pretty sinful to me and But God says this is not so. There is a difference. There's a real difference between Leonardo and someone who doesn't believe in Christ. And on that day, the angels will come and gather Leonardo. The angels will separate us with perfect perfect justice, the righteous from the unrighteous. How will they know who is righteous and who is unrighteous? What makes someone righteous? And unrighteous. Isn't that a scary thought that on that day when the angels come, they're going to know who's righteous and unrighteous, they're going to separate? What makes the difference? If you really think about it, it's a, it's a, it's a scary thought to think that one day God's going to kick out of this world and root out of his kingdom because they don't belong in his kingdom anyone who's unrighteous. And that's a scary thought. It's a scary thing to think, well, I think I'm going to make it because I'm a good person. I think I'll be okay because I think I'm righteous enough. If someone believes that, if someone has, has confidence or they're not concerned about it and they think that they're going to be okay because they're trusting that they're good enough to enter the kingdom of God and they're they're trusting that the angels of God are going to come and gather them for the kingdom because they're worthy of that? If someone's thinking that, brothers and sisters, they're completely ignoring the teachings of Jesus. You really think that an angel is going to come and select you for the kingdom of God because you're good enough? You're completely ignoring the teachings of Jesus. It is Christ and Christ alone who makes the difference. It is not you that make the difference. It's not because you're better than someone else that the angels will select you and not that person. You really think that you're going to be selected and someone else isn't because you're better than that person over there? It is only Christ who makes the difference. You see, the wicked appear to be weak but are not. They appear to be righteous but they are not. Brothers and sisters, Jesus taught us and his apostles whom he sent taught us and even the Old Testament prophets teach us that there is no one righteous, not one. Jesus' point on the Sermon on the Mount is that if you're going to enter the kingdom of God based upon the law of God, based upon God judging you according to your works, you have to be perfect as God is perfect. You have to have a righteousness that's greater than the common righteousness of the religious people in your day. The Pharisees were the ones that everyone thought were righteous. They're not righteous. They're not going to make it. You need to have a righteousness greater than theirs. How great? Perfection. That's all that God requires. God's not going to require anything less than perfection. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us that we need to put our hope in someone else besides ourselves. And 
Jesus warns us not to put our hope in ourselves. Sadly, the Pharisees are who Jesus is talking about in this parable. The children of the wicked one are the Pharisees and those who follow the Pharisees, both in ancient times and in modern times. The Pharisees are those religious teachers that think themselves to be righteous and teach other men to be like them. The Pharisees are any religious teachers today who teach men that in order to be saved and enter the kingdom of God, they need to prove to God their own worthiness and their own goodness. The Pharisees are those who fool men to think that they're the ones, that they themselves have accomplished this and that they should follow their examples. And anyone who follows the Pharisees is actually following the devil. The Pharisees themselves are following the devil. They're the blind who are leading the blind into a ditch. They don't expect it, though. They expect glory. They'll get unexpected shame. But brothers and sisters, the righteous and the children of the kingdom are those who have heeded the message of righteousness, who realize that according to the law, no one will be justified who realize that they are sinners, who realize that they don't deserve to go to the kingdom of God, who realize if they get what they deserve, if the angels were to come their way today and they were to get what they deserved, they would go to the furnace of fire. And yet the message or the good news of the kingdom, they believe, which is that God sent his son into the world to die for the sins of sinners. And that God's son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, he became for us sin. He became the propitiation for our sin on the cross. He satisfied the justice of God on our behalf and that if we believe in Christ and trust in Christ and what Christ did for us on the cross, that we are justified freely as a gift of God's amazing grace. You realize you're a sinner. You put your hope in him and in his grace And God did this for us because God loves us. God doesn't want us to go to the furnace of fire. God doesn't want any to go to the furnace of fire. Jesus died for all and invites you to trust in him and that his sacrifice is enough to cover your sin, to cover your shame, and to allow you to be manifested in glory with him when he appears. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's the only reason why any of us blockheads would be manifested in glory when Jesus comes back. You really think it's because we're good? It's not because we're good. It's because Jesus died and his death is so powerful. His love is so amazing that we would actually appear with God in glory. And that glory will not be our own. It will be the glory of Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? Every single one of us believers will be trophies of his glory on that day. It's just a wonderful thought, isn't it? Now, this parable is not merely about who is righteous and unrighteous, but one of the main points is that the righteous and the unrighteous shall exist side by side until the end of the age. This was unexpected, and it was strange for the Messiah to say this. Charles Erdman wrote concerning this, universal righteousness and peace cannot be expected until the king comes to bring the right to its ultimate triumph. There are many Christians who delude themselves into thinking that as Christians, we can transform this world and make it 
a world of universal righteousness and peace. A wonderful thought. It's good to long for righteousness and peace to be universal. It's in God's heart also. But it will not happen until Jesus Christ returns. J.C. Ryle wrote, The kingdoms of this world shall never become the kingdoms of Christ until the king himself returns. He goes on to say, The purest preaching of the gospel will not prevent this. The most strict and prudent discipline will not prevent this. As Christians, we cannot delude ourselves to think, well, if we just preach it right, and if we just set up a whole bunch of rules, one day we'll just take over the world for Jesus. Even if we preach the gospel in its purity, as Jesus did and as the apostles did, it will always remain mixed until Jesus Christ returns. And of course, because of this, Christians find themselves in a hostile world. Christians find themselves in a world that doesn't approve of their message of righteousness. It's not a very hostile world when your, your roots are tangled up with the roots of the unrighteous and you're there face-to-face telling them that they're unrighteous even when they think they're not. Or when you stand there and say, you know that you're actually going to get shame on Judgment Day if you don't believe in this message of grace. And they're saying, what? No, I'm expecting glory. And you're saying, no, you're not going to get glory. You can't run though, can you? Your roots are tangled up with theirs. And persecution often results. But this is the way it is, Jesus is saying. And he's saying, don't, don't be afraid of it. Don't try to change it. Thrive in it. As Christians, until Jesus Christ returns, we will live in a hostile world that is hostile to our message. Are we going to be afraid of it? Are we going to try to run away from it? Are we going to try to change it and make, before we start preaching, we're going to try to change it? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying this to encourage us And so we can thrive in it knowing that one day things will change. Jesus encourages us by saying, what is hidden now will one day be manifested. What is despised now will one day rule over all the earth. It's hidden and small, but one day it will consume all things. And we can then have courage as Christians, even though we're misunderstood, even though we're persecuted, even though we're few, We can have courage knowing that one day things are going to change. This is his point in the two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. The parables are not about how the growth takes place. That's not Jesus' point. He's not here saying that the kingdom of God slowly spreads throughout the world. That's not his point in these parables. The point of his teaching of these two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven is that What is small, one day becomes great. What is insignificant, one day consumes all things. Take heart, be encouraged. You see, the the apostles received unexpected shame, the disciples. They also expected the Messiah to show up and bring glory. What they found was unexpected shame, but now they're encouraged to have expected glory. And it's by us as Christians living our lives, expecting Christ's return and the glory that will follow, that we are more than conquerors in this life. Isn't it amazing? You ever get bothered by the fact that Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior, who's the Messiah, the most climactic moment in all of history was his death on the cross, and yet it has such little attention in history. You ever notice that? The Romans gave it no attention almost. Jesus was 
considered only in passing comments by the great Roman historians in the first century. And you think, well, if Jesus really was the Son of God, and people argue this against us Christians, they say, if Jesus really was the Son of God, and if it really was as you Christians say, don't you think that like in the first century all the historians would have been all over it? They weren't. There was more important things to look at in those days. What do the Romans find important? Oh, the battles of the Roman Empire and their conquering. And we have to admit as Christians, yeah, Christ is pretty much an afterthought by the historians in those days. We're not to think, oh, that proves it's all wrong. As Christians, we think, we are to think, that's exactly what Jesus said it would be. His coming into the world was almost silent. It didn't get all the fanfare. It was ignored and despised as contemptible. But one day, the whole world will be filled with wonder and awe at Jesus Christ and what he did for us 2,000 years ago. Jesus is not here saying that there will not be a, a cataclysmic separation of the children of light and the children of darkness, as was commonly expected. He says there will be that, but just not now. Now we live in the hostile world as children of the future age. Even though the future age is yet to come, we belong to it. We seek to live according to it, the righteousness of the kingdom of God. In a sense, Christians are the true New Agers. In closing, brothers and sisters, such as the mysteries of the kingdom of God, we see it more clearly now, having 2,000 years of hindsight. Some of these things that I've shared today, uh, as Christians, you might say, yeah, I've, I've already known that. But the things that I shared today were new, and the disciples had to learn it in the first century. They had to learn about two comings of Christ. They had to learn about a silent coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. They had to learn about rejection. They had to learn about persecution. And they had to learn about the coming glory of the kingdom of God. But the issue and the ultimate question to ask ourselves today is where will we be on that day? Where will you be, ask yourself, on that day? Where will you be when that day happens? When it happens, will the angels collect you for the kingdom or will the angels collect you for the furnace? Are you righteous or are you unrighteous? Do you belong to the kingdom of God today or not? What will that day reveal about your soul? If you've not believed the gospel of the kingdom, then today I invite you, believe and be saved. Don't put it off. There's no reason for you to put it off. You can be saved today. All it takes is humbling yourself and confessing that you are a sinner and putting your trust in the grace and the mercy of God that's been revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins so you don't have to go to hell. He died for you so that you can be blameless in the sight of God. He died for you so that when he appears in glory, you also can appear in glory. Just receive his righteousness as a gift. Don't be proud like the Darnell. Don't be proud and think that you can stand up straight on your own. Don't be deceived by the devil who says, you're okay, 
You're okay. You're good enough. God's not going to send anyone to hell. Certainly he's not going to send you to hell. You're not that bad. If you're not that bad, then Jesus didn't need to die for you. But he did die for you because you are that bad. Believe in what God has to say about you and not what the devil has to say about you. It will make the difference. It will make the difference between unestimable shame or glory. Let's pray. Father, as we read these hard words this morning, we thank you for delivering them to us. And even though they hurt, and even though they humble us or humiliate us, even though they're not popular, even though we receive rejection on account of these words, Lord, we thank you for giving them to us. We thank you for telling us the truth and not just telling us what we want to hear. And Lord, I pray that we would all seriously contemplate where we will be on that day and what really makes the difference. Lord, thank you that you don't want us to go to the fire, even though that's what we deserve. And thank you most of all for dying for our sins so that we can have eternal life. Help us not to forget this as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen.